Hey, hey! Intuitive development classes are coming up in the beginning of February. We actually start on the 1st of February. It's going to be six weeks long, and if affordability has been an issue for you in the past, there is now sliding scale pricing available so you can choose a price that best fits your budget. If you're interested in learning more, then click the link in the show notes to check it out. And while I love doing the show and putting information together about missing and murdered persons and feeling into their cases as a psychic and as a medium, I do also work to make all of this possible. You can find me at www.catherineannintuitive.com for psychic development mentorship, private readings, and for one-off questions that will receive a short video response delivered to your email. Also, starting in February of 2022, can you believe we're even already there? I will be opening another self-worth growth program for women looking to connect with their value and learn how to handle life's curveballs with grace, ease, and full faith that they can improve things for themselves and live a happier, more fulfilled, less stressful existence. Click the link in the show notes to grab a free chat in order to see if showing up for your self-worth is a good program for you. I'm your host. Catherine Galvin, true crime lover, seeker of justice, intuitive medium, and this is Murder and Mediumship. And just one more thing before we dive fully into this case, I'd like to take a moment to thank my listeners and those who pledge my Patreon in support of the show. I've added a PayPal link to the show notes for anyone who would like to make a donation in support of production of the show without making a monthly pledge. Thank you for the reviews and especially to this one entitled, The Podcast You Have Always Wanted. Paul 55 writes, this is the podcast I have always wanted to listen to. It's like somehow the universe has guided this podcast to me. Great sound, great content, great sense of respect for the families and regards of the information coming through. Totally top. Thank you, Paul. Your review really, truly means so, so much. And if you all like what you hear today, then please head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review to boost the likelihood of others stumbling upon this, um, excuse me, upon this podcast. Selfishly, these reviews also keep me feeling top-notch when these cases are difficult to feel into or to go over in general. So sincerely, thank you. Please send any show requests to Catherine Galvin at katherineannintuitive.com. And if you don't hear back from me right away or even within a month or so, know that I've received your request. I'm just figuring out a system to keep track of all of these and trying to catch up with a little bit of um, Q&A on TikTok and Instagram, it got a little out of control there for a moment, and I am getting back to everyone as quickly as I can. This episode, I'm going to start with a trigger warning. It contains information of an especially graphic nature and deals with rape, suicide, and violence. I will give warning before diving into the graphic content, but consider this your first warning. I also want to say that this one gets a little bit confusing. I'm going to be sharing conflicting reports as well as kind of dodging back and forth between present day and what happened as we go. So try to pay attention, get out your notebook. I'm just kidding. Don't get out a notebook, but it's it's definitely going to be a lengthier case this time, just so you all know ahead of time. All right. Lavina Lynn Johnson was born to Dr. John Johnson and Linda Johnson in July of 1985. From the way she's been described by family, it's so clear that she was a very driven and ambitious person from a very young age. Lavina played violin, sang for the church choir, ran track, and graduated from Hazelwood High School in Florissant, Missouri with honors. When Lavina believed in something, she believed in it with such conviction that there was no way it wasn't going to come together for her. At 11 years old, she was a due-paying member of PETA, 
and remained a vegetarian throughout her life. That is dedication at 11 years old. So her ambition led her to desire to go to a school at the University of California with dreams of becoming a filmmaker. And as a resident of the state of Missouri, if you're from the States, the way that it works here is if you go to college in state, it costs you considerably less than it costs you to go to college that's in a state that you're not a resident of. So as a resident of Missouri, going to college in California would cost an incredible amount, as if college doesn't already cost an insane amount even with in-state tuition. Lavina was also one of five siblings, and she was the first girl after three boys and had a younger sister who was fairly close in age to her, I believe about two and a half years apart. Being an incredibly thoughtful person, she didn't think it was right for her dad to have to work even harder just to put them all through college. She wanted to do her part to pay for school and proposed the idea of enlisting in the United States Army as a means to do so. Her dad, Dr. John Johnson, has served many years ago about three years, and through his service, he was able to leave the Pruitt Ego housing project in St. Louis that he grew up in and eventually obtained his doctorate in psychology. Knowing that that was because of the army that he was afforded these opportunities and knowing that Lavina was often told how similar she was to her father from looks to beliefs and actions, he still really didn't support the idea of her joining, but ultimately it was her decision. So in May of 2004, Lavina graduated high school, and in September of that year, she left her basic training in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And though her father was prior service, he still, like I said, wasn't too excited for her to be enlisting in the Army. However, to ease their concerns, Lavina had set up a meeting with her recruiter who had more or less told her and her parents that it was quite unlikely that she would be deployed to Iraq. As someone who went to basic training for the Navy... It's a joke within the armed forces of, quote, what my recruiter told me versus the reality. Recruiters, and not all of them, have a reputation for saying whatever they have to say to fill recruitment quotas. And I know that my recruiter spun some tales for sure, but ultimately he was fairly honest with me. Hearing the stories of others who I went to boot camp with, this wasn't always the case. So, Some of them really will say anything just to get you enlisted. And regardless, this was 2004 and the army. To tell someone it was unlikely that they'd be sent to Iraq is absurd. If you recall, this is literally only three years after the 9-11 attacks in New York City that ultimately led to the war on terror. In May of 2005, less than a year into her military career, Lavina deployed to Iraq. Crazy, right? With the 129th Corps Support Battalion in Balad, Iraq just north of the capital of Baghdad. When Lavina arrived, her job was to open and run the communication room, which my understanding, it's like a trailer setup where troops could utilize internet services and make phone calls. Because of where she was working on base, she was blessed with the ability to call home nearly every day. So much had shifted since boot camp for Lavina. And when she got there, they were had they had been built up, the women there, and made to feel like female warriors. But by the time she got to Iraq, the attitude toward her and other female soldiers had changed, so much so that over there they were seen as half a soldier, as she described it to her dad. And according to her letters home and her phone calls, she was often called sold in, re- in reference to her being half as good as the male soldiers on base. They called them half the word. Despite this, she was adjusting fairly well to being overseas and was known by her commanding officer and friends that she had made as being the person who was always there to encourage everyone else and to make sure that 
she could get anyone smiling and feeling better no matter what. Her father remembers one particular phone call, though, where Lavina was feeling especially frustrated. She had been trying to close the communications room for the day and was being met with resistance from the men who were there. They were refusing to leave, basically ignoring her, despite them being told multiple times that they had to go. The room was closing for the day. It was the rule that the room closed. She was trying to uphold her orders, and they just weren't paying any attention to her at all. So according to multiple sources and interviews with her dad, not long after the room was supposed to be closing, a general showed up and kicked everyone out without speaking more than one word is how it's been told. He then turned to Lavina and told her that she was too soft-spoken and no one would listen to her because she wasn't commanding enough. When she recounted this embarrassing experience to her dad, Dr. Johnson was concerned. See, and this may not be obvious to anyone with no knowledge of chain of command or the way that the military works, but for a general, the top of enlisted personnel on base, to be speaking to a private, the bottom of enlisted personnel, it doesn't really make sense. Typically, you wouldn't see that anyway. This concerned her dad, and because of it, he encouraged her to ask her command for what's called a battle buddy. Now, a battle buddy is essentially for accountability, safety, having each other's backs. Now, my husband's active duty in the Navy, and I don't have considerable knowledge of how it works in the Army, but it's my understanding that this helps to limit chances for misconduct and gives you an extra set of eyes and ears for support. So it's going to help, and I feel especially women, and maybe I'm speaking out of place, but it's supposed to help especially women have that sense of safety and feel like they're being taken care of. And because of how Lavina felt targeted in this encounter with the general rather than supported, her dad went so far as to tell her that he would get involved and make sure that a battle buddy would be assigned to her. So she agreed to ask for one, but didn't really follow through as far as we know. And really, she was nervous to sound like she was telling her chain of command how to do their job, which, I mean, really aren't toes that you want to step on. On July 17, 2005, she would call home for the last time. This phone call was an exciting one for her, though, as she had just found out that she likely would be home earlier than originally anticipated, and that meant she would be home for Christmas. It's not often that you're home before expected. It's more typical that you're home after you expect, so to be able to make that phone call had to feel just so exhilarating. Dr. Johnson and his two daughters had a tradition where they would decorate the Christmas tree every year on the day after Thanksgiving. Knowing now that she'd be home for Christmas, she asked her dad to wait to decorate the tree with her. Hopefully, she'd be able to get leave when she was back in the States. Everyone was excited for this news, and Lavina was also going to be starting a new position on base and would no longer be in the communications building. When she hung up with her parents that day, she told them she'd call them in a few days after she started training for her new job. And she didn't know what she would be doing yet, but was eager to learn and grow more and fill them in on the details when she talked to them next. That phone call would never come, though. On July 17th, she was supposed to meet two other soldiers at 8 p.m. to go running in preparation for their upcoming fitness test. When she didn't show up, the sergeant first class she was meeting went by to check on her after the group finished their run. Around 9.15, he arrived at her room in the barracks, and she wasn't in her room. At least she didn't come to the door when he knocked. On the 18th, she failed to show up for her new assignment, though, which was even more uncharacteristic of her. And that's a big deal. That's not like just not showing up for your first college class or something. If you don't show up to a class that you're scheduled to be in when you're in the military, that's a big, big deal. So those who knew her in class became concerned when she still wasn't there even by 10 a.m. and reported her missing. 
So according to the army, she was found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound from an M16 inserted into her mouth. Her family believes she did not die on the 18th, as reported by the army, but rather that evening of the 17th, when no one could find her and she wouldn't come to her door. On July 19th, at 7.30 in the morning, a soldier came up the steps to the front porch of the Johnson home in Florissant, Missouri, and informed Dr. Johnson that his daughter, Private Lavina Johnson, was deceased as a result of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And when I tell you that Dr. Johnson didn't believe this from the start, I mean, as per that man's account of the days of, of the events of that day, his wife was wailing on the balcony above him. As his sons rushed to her aid and his, he quickly recovered his senses and said, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that my daughter took her own life? To which the soldier delivering the news replied that her death was under investigation. No more information was conveyed from that soldier. For starters, a staff sergeant is not typically used to deliver news like this, and that's who came to the door. There's usually a chaplain present for news of this caliber being given to a family, or at the very least, an officer of some sort. Not an enlisted personnel. Lavina had only been in Iraq for eight weeks and died just eight days before her 20th birthday. And hold on, because this is where it gets confusing, and eventually it's going to get a little bit graphic here. So this show, for the most part, I really, truly believe, and I'm very proud of, that we've done a great job in sparing graphic, gruesome details from the episodes, as you've heard me say before, and I will again. But in case it's your first time listening, no family deserves to stumble upon an episode and hear things about their loved ones that they do not want to hear. And the way in which someone dies is not the way in which they should be remembered. However, this is a true crime podcast seeking to bring attention to cases that have not received justice. And in this particular case, the family of Lavina Johnson, especially her father, has openly shared vivid details about the state in which she was found. And in this particular case, it is important to share this. If you do not wish to hear the state that her body was found in, then please pay attention so that you know when to skip or hit forward half a dozen times. That being said, the official report obtained by the Johnson family from the Army after much pressure from Congress... The official report that says Expeditionary Security Forces Squadron responded to the initial call from an airman first class who found Private Johnson underneath a bench in a contractor's tent. The staff sergeant with the airman, whose names have both been redacted, verified that there were no signs of life. This report will be posted in the show notes as it has been made available to the public by the Johnson family. But the tech sergeant who arrived on scene after emergency services were called found an M16 across Lavina's body. The body was reported to be smoking or smoldering, as well as everything else in the tent. When the medics arrived, it was reported that the M16 was cradled across her left shoulder, and that he only saw the trauma to her head. The two who found the tent where the smoke was coming from reported that they only walked about three feet into the tent and saw that there was no fire, but they did see the smoking and they didn't touch Private Johnson, and they left without trying, without touching anything to make the call to emergency services. When the flight sergeant in charge arrived on the scene, he found a, quote, black female lying on her back, face up, with her left arm outstretched and right arm across her face. The M16 was stretched out across her left wrist, and the thick blood above her head, beneath her head, was not moving. What floors me is that other accounts discuss how the bench in the tent was moved as it was on fire. So why does this report say that no one saw a fire when they arrived upon the smoke tent? 
report itself is confusing if you're not used to looking over official official incident reports, especially with the amount of redaction of redacted names and the back and forth nature of who saw what and when. It's difficult to piece it all together. Later, I read that the sergeant who arrived at the tent with the KBR contractor and KBR is a logistics and defense support company on base. They had seen a flash of light and heard an explosion when they arrived. They saw, excuse me, they had seen a flash of light and heard an explosion. And then when they arrived, they saw Johnson's body and two small fires. Reportedly, they tried to move her, but when they realized she was too heavy, they turned their focus to the fires and put them out with buckets of dirt. The bench was described as being one to two feet from the wall of the tent, and the flames were as high as the bench. No fire or a mediumish fire. Really don't understand this. They dragged the bench from the tent away from the blood and poured water on the part of the bench that was on fire. Or not on fire. This report said on fire. Some say that there were a, there was a container on the top of the bench that was also lit on fire. The tent that she was found in was used as a break area for workers who were building a new area on base. However, they were at one time used to house contractors and no longer were in use for that purpose. Enlisted personnel such as Private Johnson would not have been allowed into that area on base. It was off limits to them. Prior to her plants, and, and just to like go back there for a second, Lavina wouldn't have done anything that she wasn't allowed to do because she was very much a strict rule follower and very much just would she just would not have. She was all about following the rules and being organized and responsible. And this is not something that she would have broken a rule around, especially when she was already nervous on base. Prior to her plans for running back on the evening of the 17th, Lavina had been with a fellow soldier whose name has not been released and claims to have been with her around 6 p.m. that day. According to the Army's version of events, she had gone to the Army Exchange, the PX, a small grocery store essentially, where she had purchased lip balm, soda, and M&Ms. She dropped the bag of stuff off on her bed and grabbed her reflective belt. If you're running on base, you have to use reflective gear for safety. And if she was due to go running with others, this makes sense as to why she'd go grab hers. According to the Army, she then also grabbed her M16 and ventured off to the contractor's tent, though. There, with intention of committing suicide, she used a can of accelerant to start a fire and burned pages from either her journal, which was missing the first third of pages but contained one entry, the final entry, about her combat life-saving course she had recently taken. Nothing personal. Nothing suspicious about there being fire started and journals being ripped up. Or some sources claim that she was burning emails from her ex-boyfriend. Please hear my sarcasm when I say there's nothing suspicious there. She then proceeded to shoot herself in the mouth with her M16. This is the Army's version of events. So what in the actual world here? How does this make sense? She's going to kill herself, so she runs to the PX, grabs some lip balm and snacks before putting on her reflective belt to safely traverse the base to a part of base she isn't supposed to be in to effectively burn some papers and then shoot herself? Why the fuck would she go to all of that trouble? This makes no sense whatsoever. By the way, Dr. Johnson was actually an employee of support services to the Army and counseled soldiers, soldiers who were struggling from their experiences in theater or whatever it may be, but were having suicidal thoughts. So when he is an expert in handling suicidal ideations in soldiers, he asks what in the hell signs did his daughter give off of being suicidal when she had just been speaking of coming home to decorate the tree in about five or six months. Literally that day, she was talking about that with them. 
She was excited for her new class, excited to be coming home soon, and then within hours she shot herself with an M16. To be even more direct, when her father began digging to find out just how she managed to shoot herself, he found out that his five foot one daughter supposedly put the M16 in her mouth to end her life. He was beyond outraged. This would be physically impossible for her to do. But just wait until you hear what the Army's autopsy had to say about this and the man who conducted the autopsy. According to the Army, her signs of depression were recently starting smoking and eating a lot of ice cream. A few also report that she had made jokes about, quote, just wanting to die or how she could, quote, just kill herself. But intuitively, and also having been a 19-year-old girl, most at one time or another use those figures of speech. And when I was that age, ice cream was a staple in my diet as well. I wasn't depressed, and I truly don't feel that she was either. Maybe she was nervous or feeling uncomfortable from some of her superior officers, the general, but she wasn't suicidal or depressed. In fact, according to her commanding officer, she was described as a hardworking soldier who was always making others laugh and feel good. He saw no signs or difficulties or changes in behavior of her. And again, this doesn't sound suicidal. Even those who gathered her belongings and went through her things on July 19th found nothing unusual about her room, which was well organized and clean. A very typical thing for Lavina's personality. They found family photos and clean uniforms, her hygiene product, excuse me, her hygiene products, and a couple of other papers and some articles, but really nothing else. They did find that journal though, with the first one third of the pages torn out. Some of the evidence collected included medical paperwork, and it was found that um, Lavina had actually recently been diagnosed with an STD in which she was receiving treatment for. The base medical clinic had emailed her to let her know that a second medication was ready for her to pick up from her to pick up for her treatment. And I can't find exactly when she contracted the STD, if it had been from her previous boyfriend or if this was from an encounter on base. There are also reports that she had been sexually assaulted, but I can't find if this was prior to her being in Iraq or if this happened while in Iraq. However, in 2020, 7,816 military members reported being sexually assaulted during a military-wide survey. Only 350 of those 7,816 cases were reported. It is estimated, though, that that 7,800 is actually severely misrepresented, and the number is actually likely closer to 20,000. But the fear of reporting assaults and the repercussions from doing so keep both men and women from reporting them. And I'll get into that later, but you know, I, I can't help myself. The day after her death, a general called the family. A day, the day after her death was reported to her family, a general called them to say that Lavina had worked her usual shift that morning and finished around five. She then headed to her room to put on PT gear to train with others, never showed up, and when someone went to check on her, she didn't answer. I feel like the army believed this vague dis- this vague information was supposed to be enough to satisfy her parents, but her dad was not having it. All right, I want to pause for a quick break here and just let you all know.
um, page one. And also go ahead and leave that five-star review anytime while you're listening to this episode so we can let the story of Lavina Johnson be heard by even more ears. Okay, going to get back to it. The Army told Dr. Johnson that they would call him immediately after the autopsy was performed. But as you've seen, they really stick to what they say here, right? And they actually called 11 days after the autopsy. And when Dr. Ed Reedy called Dr. Johnson, rather than going over details of the autopsy with him, he merely asked Dr. Johnson if he had any questions. (laughs) She was laid to rest on July 28, 2005, but they didn't call Dr. Johnson to go over the autopsy until August 3rd. If her autopsy was 11 days before receiving the call from Dr. Reedy, then it would have been on July 24th, and Dr. Reedy should have called no later than maybe even the 25th. And if this was the case, then it doesn't, doesn't it seem odd that they would wait until after she was buried in the ground to go over the autopsy with Dr. Johnson? But as you can tell already, Dr. Johnson is on top of it. He's not taking their bullshit as the truth, okay? So when her body was being prepared for her service, for the funeral, Dr. Johnson stepped in and made sure that he had a chance to look over her body. He knew he was in there for a hellish time in doing so, but he had to see his daughter one more time. The casualty liaison officer that was assigned to the Johnson family had recommended a closed casket funeral because according to them, what was left of their daughter from the M16 wouldn't be okay for an open casket service. But what Dr. Johnson noticed while looking over his daughter's body wasn't so much shocking because of the damage done, but almost the opposite. He didn't believe that the small hole in her head, the tiny hole, in her head could have been caused by an M16. Now, recalling that he worked with suicidal army members and veterans, he had a patient who had chosen to end his life with an M16 in his mouth, much like the army was trying to lead him to believe his daughter did. However, Dr. Johnson describes this young man's head as having a giant piece of his skull blown off. Excuse me, disclaimer, this is where it's going to get graphic, okay? Not this small bullet hole, much like you would see from an officer-issued 9mm. The wound was also on the left side of her head, and she was right-handed, making even less sense to him. Further, she was covered in cuts, scrapes, and bruises all over her face, all over her neck, and on her lips. Her nose appeared to have been broken. She had two black eyes and broken teeth. So did he have questions for Dr. Reedy? You bet he did. He asked him whether a rape kit had been done on his daughter or not, and Dr. Reedy told him no, there was not, as there was no sign of sexual assault, despite the state of her body. So he implored as to why the gunshot wound was on the left side of her head, and Dr. Reedy claimed that it was an exit wound from the M16 and that the lack of damage Dr. Johnson claimed to have seen was simply because he had not been looking at it from the right angle. But where was the suicide note? Where was the bullet that killed her? How had that not been recovered? And finally, when he surmised that his daughter couldn't have killed herself with an M16 that was 40 inches, the weapon was too long considering she was only 5 foot 1. Dr. Reedy replied, well, she managed. I don't know how that man didn't jump through the phone and strangle Dr. Reedy. However, take a second to collect your jaws off the floor. 
the audacity of that doctor. The report itself was not made available to the family until September 2005, nearly two months after its completion. And that report was turned over to the family after a very, with um, a very, it was in very bad condition, like a very bad black and white Xerox copy of the documents, many of which were difficult at best to make out because of the poor quality. Now, the trace evidence report provided on September 13th of 2005 would indicate that while there was gunshot residue recovered from the victim, it was an insignificant amount, which would say to me that that means she couldn't have killed herself, right? It had to be somebody else. According to them, it doesn't mean that she didn't kill herself, but that it's possible to have a small amount of gunshot residue due to the weapon itself not depositing a significant amount of gunshot residue, which is unlikely with an M16. Or perhaps there was little residue because of the time that passed between the shot being fired and the collection of the residue. Again, it wasn't very long, and she was in an enclosed tent where the wind and the elements wouldn't have been an issue. Her hands could have been rubbed, could have been another reason as to why the residue was not detected in a significant amount, even though she, quote, killed herself. But she actually had gloves glued to her hands. Yeah, glued to her hands. Now, maybe it was possible because of the explosion so near to her body, but what actual explosion? Or her hands could have been dirty, which would have soiled the collection pad and made it ineffective. Again, she was wearing gloves that were glued to her hands, so I don't see how that's possible either. The Army concluded that this was an intraoral gunshot wound to the head, and it was ruled a suicide. Dr. Johnson wouldn't have it. In the black and white copy of the reports turned over by the Army, after much pushing from Dr. Johnson, there was a photocopy of a CD-ROM. A fucking photocopy of a CD-ROM. Whether this was done as like an FU to the family or as someone possibly trying to sneak it in to say like, hey, you're missing something and I'll get in trouble if I send you the CD, so here's a photo of it so that you know to look for it. Or if someone was that stupid to send an actual photocopy of a CD-ROM over I'm kind of leaning toward the second option that whoever made these copies made sure to do so in a way that maybe Dr. Johnson knew that there was something on that CD that he had to have. They, they wanted to make sure that he wasn't going to miss out on that information, even though it wasn't being offered to him at the time. So he filed Freedom of Information Act requests for every single document that he would eventually obtain. He rallied local legislators, informed his own investigation team of family members with prior service in the Army, as well as criminal science backgrounds. Representative William Lacey Clay's staff gave hours upon hours of their time to help the Johnson family get to the truth about their daughter. He said, and I quote, PFC, Private First Class Johnson, gave her life for her country, and her country has an obligation to tell her family the whole truth about her death. Now, during a televised hearing about the death of another soldier that was covered up, a maybe more famous soldier, Pat Tillman, former NFL star who quit his NFL job and joined the Army in 2002 following 9-11, Clay was able to bring up during this hearing what was going on with Dr. Johnson and his daughter Lavina's suspicious death. While on television, the representatives of the Army were more than cooperative and compassionate about the struggle of the Johnson family getting the necessary information to look into their daughter's death. Off camera, though, they refused to turn the information over as Dr. Johnson just wasn't entitled to the information in the CD-ROM and it was an issue of privacy for those whose names were on it. 
Congress pushed back and ultimately ordered the army to turn over the CD-ROM, which would confirm everything that Dr. Johnson suspected. The CD held all of the colored pictures of the crime scene. It showed that Lavina's neck that did appear broken. It showed that Lavina's neck appeared broken as the doctor's brother had suspected, and it showed that her shoulder appeared to be dislocated. The photos also indicated lividity on the wrong side of the body for how she had been dis- how she had been described to have been found, meaning that she was most certainly moved post-mortem. Bloody footprints could be seen in the dirt in the front of the tent and also indicated that it was likely someone also bled outside of that tent. Now, this is where I will be discussing her genitals, so if you want to skip ahead, now would be a great time to do so. The photos of the autopsy showed that her vaginal lips were stuck open and indicated not only a brutal sexual assault, but that something was left inside of her. And it was these photos that solidified for Dr. Johnson that he had to have a second autopsy performed. So in May of 2007, Lavina's body was exhumed. And the second autopsy concluded that there were absolutely signs of sexual assault. Parts of her vagina were surgically removed as well as parts of her anus. A caustic substance was poured all over her genitals, both burning them and likely concealing and destroying any DNA evidence. Not only that, but it appeared that quick clot was poured into her vaginal and anal cavities. A quick clot is used to stop bleeding on the battlefield in cases of significant injury, and it turns into something comparable to cement. It has to be surgically removed to get it out. Part of her tongue was also cut out, and it's suspected that it's possible that the 9mm bullet was actually lodged in the tongue, and that's why they cut it out. But again, there's no proof of that, especially because she, quote, killed herself with an M16, right? So it had also been found that she indeed did have burns on her face, bruises on her body, her neck was broken, and post-mortem reconstructive surgery had been performed on her nose. And shockingly, there was no gunshot residue on her hands because she didn't kill herself. The Army stands by its conclusion that this was a suicide and refuses to reopen her case unless substantial evidence to the contrary is found. In other words, they will never reopen her case. Through this fight to find his daughter's killer, Dr. Johnson discovered that Lavina wasn't the first female soldier to be raped and then die under suspicious circumstances labeled as suicide. The difference is, though, that he didn't just accept it. He had the means to fight it and to find out more, and he will continue to fight to find the truth until the day that he dies. Not everyone is that fortunate to know how to fight it, to have the inside experience that he has, to have the experience as a psychologist to soldiers, and to know how to use his his state legislation in Congress to move forward in making sure that he can obtain the information necessary to continue digging into her case. Not everyone is equipped with that ability. And it's so unfortunate that so many others have probably gone through similar experiences and they just accepted it as suicide because they had no choice as far as they knew. According to Representative Jane Harmon, women serving in the U.S. military are more likely to be raped by a fellow soldier than killed by enemy fire in Iraq. Let that sink in. A woman choosing to serve her country in the military is more likely to be raped by a fellow soldier than to be killed by an enemy in Iraq. It's horrific. 
chief of public affairs for the Army's Criminal Investigation Command called her death a tragic suicide that resulted in a lengthy and thorough investigation. However, even sexual victim advocates in the armed services are now calling attention to this case again in even 2021. I almost said 2020. It's a blatant cover-up, okay? I've spoken a little bit as to what I feel happened here, but I want to clearly state some things that I felt about this case and heard in connection with Lavina. I felt some really sadistic and just nasty name-calling and a very angry tone coming from a male voice speaking to her before he killed her. I do believe very much that she was raped. Again, I'm going to say something disturbing, but I also believe it's very likely that she was sodomized with the weapon and killed. I believe that whatever it was that was poured into her vaginal and anal cavities was done so not only to conceal the DNA, but also to conceal the brutality of the assault on her private area. I believe she was told to report there, but not to tell anyone, and that because of her age and because of her low standing and rank, And because of how new she was to the military, she went because she couldn't disobey an order. I believe that she thought something was going to be worked out. And I really feel like she had a false sense of security around this. I get the sense of at least two men, but there's very possibly a third. And more in a way that one would have stood guard outside the tent while another one restrained her and the third that was responsible for the rest. And I heard the words beaten and gagged. I feel very strongly that she knew something she wasn't supposed to know about the general while unnamed confronted her in the communications building as well as gave her hell in other places because he could. And I'm sure that that was documented in her journal and that's why that was ripped out. No one is going to come to the aid of a young black girl from Missouri, but he couldn't have been more wrong. I believe that he had already assaulted her and that's why she needed the treatment for the STD but that because she went to medical and because he was already doing so many things he wasn't supposed to be doing, he was going to get rid of her. He didn't trust that she wouldn't try to expose him for who and what he was and risk losing his career and family. So when you're assaulted in the military, you have the option to report an assault as unrestricted or restricted. If you report it as restricted, then you don't give any names or information about the assailant and all counseling and medical services are made available to you. If you report it unrestricted, then the alleged attacker will be brought in and questioned and theoretically punished, but the punishment rarely fits the crime, if a punishment is ever imposed at all. However, I believe she may have reported this as restricted, and he was afraid that she would make it unrestricted. He was already, quote, sleeping with other soldiers and contractors as well. And I want to take a moment to make an aside here. In no way... Is a man in a position of authority over you, especially in this level of positional authority, ever having consensual sex with a subordinate? I don't care if any of these women even thought that it was their choice. It is not. It is harassment. It is inappropriate. And it's wrong and illegal for a reason. I do also believe that she's helping to guide things from the other side so that repercussions for rapists and the armed forces will be greater and that victim support will become actual support rather than a career death sentence. If you didn't know, often when a case is brought against a military member for sexual assault, the majority of them are dropped. And I personally know more women than I can count on two hands who have served and been assaulted 
and even some who have pursued charges within the military only to have their attackers freed with no consequences, even with sufficient evidence. This is no exaggeration. This is truly an epidemic within the military, and the way that the statistics are continually skewed so that we think it's improving is it's appalling. This is the good old boys club and that's, that's got to change. I don't know that it's going to change, but it's got to change. If you want to go further down the rabbit hole of the Lavina Johnson case, Google general involved in Lavina Johnson death. And I'm going to leave it at that. So I don't get myself into any trouble. Lavina Johnson didn't kill herself. She was raped and murdered. And you know what though? I believe her killer will actually be brought to justice in one way or another before the end of his pathetic life. If it's not judicial justice, he will reap what he has sown. The petition to reopen her case is posted in the show notes, as well as the documentary, The Silent Truth, and an hour-long interview with her father, Dr. John Johnson. I highly recommend both. Help justice come to the Johnson family and sign the petition. And as always, thank you for listening to Murder and Mediumship.